If you've got your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. If you've been with us over the course of the last few weeks, you know that we've been in a sermon series that I've entitled Getting Ready for Christmas. And uh, we've, been, we've been getting ourselves ready for Christmas by examining the early passages uh, there in Luke's Gospel. And we've, we've made our way through Luke, chapter 1. And this morning we come to Luke, chapter 2. And, and what, we've, what we've known and what we've noticed as we have made our way through this, through this section of Scripture is that to get ready for Christmas, uh, by that I don't mean do you have all your Christmas decorations up. I don't, I don't mean do you have all your presents bought and wrapped and under the tree. I don't mean do you have all of your food that you're going to eat for Christmas already prepared uh, and ready. That, that's not what I mean. The truth of the matter is, as we've noted many times, you can have all of those things already done and still truly not be ready for Christmas. Uh, to be ready for Christmas, to be, to be truly ready, uh, you need to understand all that Christmas is, and, and you need to understand all that it means. And in order to fully grasp that, as we've seen over the previous weeks that we've been together in this, in this section, it's necessary to understand who Jesus is. It's necessary to understand why He came. And this morning, we're going to read about Jesus' birth. In fact, I want us to read and to focus on the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2 this morning. And as we do, in our continued effort to get ourselves ready for Christmas, I want us to consider what Luke tells us, and, and I want us to consider what Jesus' birth truly means for you and for me. So, so let's read our passage together this morning. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife. Who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity to be able to study your word. Pray that you would illuminate our hearts and help us, Lord, to be able to see you for who you truly are and what you've accomplished in our lives. Lord, we do pray for all of those who are sick and those who are hospitalized, those who are struggling at home, those who have suffered the loss of loved ones. Lord, that list is long. and We know that it is, it is varied across our congregation. But I do pray for your strength and I pray for healing. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you might uh, touch all of the lives that are affected by these times. And, and Lord, just help us to be able to trust in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Of course, the words of this passage that I've just read for you this morning is, is quite familiar. And it's uh, among the most well-known in Scripture. I, I don't know that you can come to Christmas and, and not go and read from Luke chapter 2. Um, this is a, a really beautiful passage of Scripture. Uh, it reminds us of the circumstances that surround 
the humble birth of our Lord. What we, what we read in it also was quite thought-provoking. Um, it's a passage that, when seriously reflected upon, alerts us to the paradoxical nature of, of Christmas. I'll be frank with you. I've, I've always had a love for, for paradoxes. It's a Greek word. The word paradox is a Greek word that means contrary to expectations. It's a statement or a, a proposition that, that on the surface appears to be self-contradictory, maybe even absurd, but upon further reflection and contemplation is nevertheless true. I like how one person put it. He says, paradoxes are truths that need to be gnawed on. Well, there are some paradoxes that we need to gnaw on in our scripture that I've just read for you this morning. There's some important ones. They're ones that I believe truly will help us to get ourselves ready for Christmas, and I want to highlight them for you. The first one that I want you to see, based on the outline that I've given you this morning, is this. Notice that Jesus stripped and divested himself of his splendor in order to save and deliver us from our sins. Jesus stripped and divested himself of his glory, of his splendor, so that he could deliver and save you and me from our sins. James Montgomery Boyce, he has written this, that one of the great paradoxes of this text that I read from you for you earlier is that the one born in such, a, in such lowly surroundings, in a stable, to poor parents, laid in an animal's manger, was nevertheless the God of glory, whose splendor before the incarnation surpassed that even of those heavenly beings who announced his births to the shepherds. Here is a baby, he writes, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is God in a stable. He is the supreme potentate of the universe among his own lowly cattle. Now, such an amazing concept, I want you to know, did not go unnoticed by Luke when he penned these beautiful words here in Luke chapter 2. In fact, I believe that is one of the reasons that, that Luke references Augustus Caesar at the very beginning of this narrative. You see, when Christ was born, Caesar was the supreme and most powerful man in the world. And, and by bringing attention to him, what Luke does is he contrasts Caesar's power and his fame and his glory with the weakness and the obscurity and the humility of the baby Jesus lying there in the manger in Bethlehem. In fact, these verses, I believe, make it clear that the baby Jesus is as far removed from Caesar Augustus as anyone could possibly be. He is, he is the poorest of poor. He is the lowest of low. Boyce, he, he describes the vast difference this way. He says, on the night the angels appeared near Bethlehem, Caesar would have been sleeping in Rome on a golden bed beneath sheets of fine linen. He would have been attended by servants, protected by the Praetorian Guard and the many Roman legions. By contrast, the babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger. His attendants were beasts. What's amazing to me about this, this paradox, this, this, this truth that Luke communicates to us here, is that Caesar, though, was just a man. Jesus, on the other hand, was the God-man. He's fully human, yet he is fully divine. Nevertheless, on the night in which he entered this world, Jesus slept in an animal's feeding trough while Caesar slept in his palace. 
Now, I believe it's also interesting and significant to consider the fact that that based upon Caesar's edict, based upon the fact that that he uh, decreed that all the world should be registered and, and ultimately taxed, millions of people all across the Roman Empire had to pick up their belongings and travel back to the hometowns of their ancestors so that they could be rightly registered and, and subsequently pay their taxes. After all, that's how, that's how Caesar could demonstrate his power and demonstrate his authority. It was by having people do what he said and then by paying him tribute in the process. What Caesar didn't know, however, was that his edict actually fulfilled Scripture. You see, Joseph and Mary had been living in Nazareth in the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel, but, but now they had to travel to Bethlehem, to the city of David, because that's, that was who Joseph was a descendant of. And, and so they went back to Bethlehem in order to be registered. But what must not be missed is that by moving his young pregnant wife to Bethlehem, the prophecy of the prophet Micah, who hundreds of years earlier had said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, well, that prophecy was fulfilled. You see, the whole world, it appeared, as though Caesar was the one who was in charge. But in actual fact, the omnipotent God of heaven was sovereignly ruling according to His own plan and His own will and His own time frame all along. And let me just say this to you. That's still true today. For many of us, we look at the world around us and it doesn't make any sense. It appears to us is that there are others who are in charge and, and they're in control and they're doing things and they're thwarting God's plans. But brothers and sisters, do not be mistaken. God is still sovereign. He is still in control. He is still at work. He is still overseeing His creation. He is still bringing His plans and His will to pass. Back here in our passage in Luke chapter 2, I want you to notice something else with me. Consider the humble birth of Christ. It's so filled with indignity. It's so filled with dishonor. I mean, could anything be any less regal than to be born amid the sound of lowing cattle and the stench of manure? As one has put it, when his parents wrapped Jesus in, in cloth and lay him in a manger, the humble emptying of the Christ has begun. Now, in one respect, I believe that emptying is the same thing that the Apostle Paul refers to in Philippians chapter 2. You know that that's one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture, and I refer to it often. In Philippians 2, Paul writes that Christ made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, humbling Himself and being found in the appearance as a man. But as Paul goes on to tell us in Philippians 2, Jesus' humiliation didn't stop in the manger in Bethlehem. In fact, Paul continues by telling us that He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. In other words, our Lord's humiliation, His emptying, went all the way to Calvary. And it's here that we come face to face with the paradoxical nature of Christmas. You see, according to the Scriptures, we learn that Jesus was born so that He might die a cruel, torturous, and humiliating death on the cross for sinners like you and me, so that we might be set free from the penalty of our sins and be gifted with salvation. 
In fact, that is what the angel of the Lord who appeared to Joseph and said to him concerning Mary. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 21, he reveals that, that Mary will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. It means literally God will save. And that's also the message that the angels go on to reveal to the shepherds here in Luke's gospel on down in verses 10 and 11. The angels come to the shepherds out in the fields and he says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Listen, the message of those angels to those shepherds is simply this. Great fear can turn into great joy because of the good news that Jesus saves. You see, Jesus humbled. He emptied, he stripped and divested himself of his glorious state, of the, of the splendor that was his. The splendor that he had enjoyed since before time began, he emptied himself of all of that so that he might save sinners like you and me. Men, women, boys and girls who are deserving of punishment, deserving of God's wrath, and listen, Jesus did all of that by dying in our place, by suffering the punishment of death that we deserve because of our sin. This is the essence of the gospel. And it reveals to us the beautiful and the paradoxical nature of Christmas. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Listen, to be ready for Christmas, to be truly ready for Christmas, we must come to understand that Jesus stripped and divested himself of his splendor in order to save and deliver us from our sins. That's the first paradox that I want you to note from this passage. There is another, however, Another truth that should stop us in our tracks and enforce our contemplation. Note the next point on your outline this morning. It's this, Jesus' physical birth makes our spiritual birth possible. Jesus' physical birth makes our spiritual birth possible. Notice how Luke describes Jesus' birth in verse 7. It's very simply stated. He says, she brought, Mary brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. What that tells us is that a literal baby was born in Bethlehem. Our Lord had a true physical body. As we noted a couple of weeks ago, while his conception was miraculous, no, no other human being was ever conceived in the way that Jesus was conceived, being Mary being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit no one before him or after him was ever conceived like Jesus, but Jesus' birth was completely ordinary. He was delivered. He was brought forth in the same way that all babies at the time were brought forth and delivered. I read something once that caused me to kind of pause and think. The writer said that in today's world, people rarely, if ever, question the humanity of Jesus. Truthfully, I've never heard anyone challenge me or argue with me that Jesus was not a real man who really walked on the earth. Rather, the argument that is, that is put forth today concerns His divinity. 
You see, while people will readily admit that Jesus was a man, they will not as readily admit that He was God. But that's not always been the case. In fact, in the first couple of centuries after the birth of Christ, uh, many of the first heresies that plagued the early church, that the early church fathers had to address, really involved the fact that while people could accept that Jesus was, was God, they couldn't accept that He was human. They simply couldn't believe that the holy, sinless God could ever touch, much less become sinful flesh and bone. So to sort of solve that problem in their minds, many proposed that, that Jesus only appeared to be a man, that, that his body wasn't real, it just appeared real. Others, however, came and said that, well, the body was real, but, but the Christ, he only inhabited the body for about three years while he ministered here on earth, and then he left the body of the man whom he inhabited uh, shortly before the, the crucifixion and death. What I want you to know, though, is that based upon what we read here in Luke's gospel, the Savior, the, the Savior who stripped Himself and divested Himself of His, of His splendor so that He might come and save and deliver us from our sins, this same Jesus was delivered through a natural childbirth. He was both fully God and He was fully man. In other words, Jesus Christ embraced a human birth. And, and that's what really opens up to us this compelling and, and paradoxical nature of, of Christmas. You see, Christ was born physically so that we could be reborn. So that, not, not, not reborn physically, but that we might be born spiritually. Jesus, the Son of God, who was the, also the Son of Man. He became the Son of Man so that we might become sons and daughters of God. Perhaps you'll recall the famous passage in, in John chapter 3 when Jesus encountered a man named Nicodemus. Jesus told Nicodemus, He said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again or, or born from above, He says, He cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to Him, He said, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, that unless one is born of water, I believe there Jesus is, is concentrating on the physical birth, unless one is born of water and the spirit, the, the spiritual birth, well, then he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says this, that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, to be saved, you must experience both. Jesus told Nicodemus that it takes two births to gain a lasting and eternal relationship with God. It takes a physical birth, which every single one of us have experienced in the, today. But it takes also a spiritual birth. This is what Jesus describes as being born again. It's what he, what he describes as being born of the Spirit. And what the Scriptures teach us is that it took Christ's coming to earth. It took His being born physically so that you and I could be born spiritually. This is such a compelling truth because it tells us of the infinite love with which God loves us. In fact, as you all know, later in John chapter 3, we find uttered perhaps the most famous words in all of Scripture, words that describe for us why Christmas is so important. John 3, 16, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him to us so that, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he goes on to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. What those famous words remind us of is the truth that is communicated to us here concerning the birth of Christ. It is that Jesus' physical birth is what makes our spiritual birth possible. If He had not come, we would have no hope. So as we prepare our hearts for Christmas and as we get ourselves ready to celebrate the birth of Christ, we do so by recognizing that by leaving heaven and by coming to earth, Jesus stripped and divested Himself of His of His glorious splendor so that He might save and deliver us from our sins. And then we also come to recognize that His physical birth makes our spiritual birth possible. But then notice with me the final truth that I want to point out to you, one of the paradoxical nature of Christmas there. And we see it. It's the third point that I want you to note there. The one for whom there was no room on earth has gone to prepare a room for us in heaven. The one for whom there was no room on earth has gone to prepare a room for us in heaven. As we've already made mention, while, while Mary was in those final stages of, of pregnancy, she and Joseph traveled into what was for them an unknown and strange town, the town of Bethlehem. Even though they most likely had relatives there, Bethlehem was not home for them. And, and here Mary was, she was a teenager, she was pregnant with her first child, she she no doubt was suffering physically from the pain of pregnancy, but also no doubt the anxiety of, of worrying about giving birth in a place so far from home. The couple attempted to find a place to stay. Luke calls it an inn. Many have, have weighed in on what type of an accommodation this actually was. In all probability, it was a guest house of sorts where travelers often slept. It was certainly no bed and breakfast much less a holiday inn. One has stated it this way, said in all likelihood it was a squalid and dirty place, especially by contemporary standards. What's important to note, though, is that even this place was packed with people. There was no room. By the time that Joseph and Mary got to Bethlehem, they could find no accommodations. So they had to take what, what they could find. And I believe Mary's contractions began to get closer together and, and time kind of settled in and it became of the essence. And so with no other shelter available, Mary and Joseph found a place outside with the animals. Some claim this was a barn. Others, others just point to the fact that it was most likely a cave. Many of you know that back in, in January of this year, I was truly blessed to be able to go to Israel, to the Holy Land for my first time. One of the places that we visited was Bethlehem, and, and I was able to go to the place where tradition says that Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus. That, that site's debated. Others say that it was someplace else. But just to be there, what, what we do know, what can't be debated is this. Based upon what Luke tells us here is that the place where Joseph and Mary stayed was near where animals were kept because the baby was laid in a manger. For many of us, that word manger may elicit peaceful and quiet images, but in reality, it would have been anything but that. The manger in which Jesus was laid was, 
was a feeding trough for livestock. It may have been made of wood, but it was also common for mangers to to be a hollowed out place in the ground. Either way, it was into such humble beginnings that the Son of God was born. Because as Luke tells us, there was no room for them in the end. What I find so interesting about that detail, that there was no room for them in the end, that that really is indicative of how Jesus was received in general by humanity. You see, not only was there no room for Jesus in the end, but as John makes clear in the opening verses of his gospel, there was no room for Jesus in the hearts of those to whom he came to serve and to to bring life. John chapter 1 verse 11 says, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. On the night that Jesus was born, listen, most people were preoccupied with what was going on in their own lives and with their own circumstances. They were so preoccupied with those things that they had no idea what God was doing in the world. Our Lord's birth went virtually unacknowledged and unappreciated. What I want you to know is the reality is very little has changed. One commentator puts it this way. When Christ first came among us, we pushed Him into an outhouse and we have done our best to keep Him there ever since. In other words, as another puts it, what the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in ignorance, many throughout the world today do willfully. They refuse to make room for the Son of God in their lives. Let me ask you, does that describe you? Let me ask it differently. What kind of welcome have you given to Jesus in your life? Have you received Him? Have you you opened your heart to His offer of grace? Have you made room for Jesus in your life by by trusting in Him, by by spending time in prayer with Him, by spending time reading His Word, following His commandments? Is there space in your life for Jesus? Or if you're honest, do you just simply shove Him to the side? I want you to know you should truly consider that question because there is a wonderful promise that is given to those who make room for Jesus, to those who receive Him. I just read for you John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, where Jesus came to His own and His own did not receive Him. But then John goes on to say this in verse 12. He says, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. In fact, Jesus Himself makes a a wonderful promise to those who would in fact make room for Him in their hearts and believe in Him. In John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many mansions. A better translation, probably they are many rooms in my Father's house. And He says, If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Listen, as one writer has put it, He came to where we are so that we could ultimately go to where He is. 
That's an amazing thought. That is what, that's what the birth of Christ means for us. And here's the, here's the point that I want to leave you with today. You see, we are only truly ready to celebrate Christmas when we come to realize that Jesus stripped and divested himself of his splendor in order to save and deliver us from our sins. When we realize that his physical birth makes our spiritual birth possible. When we, when we truly understand that the one for whom there was no room on earth has gone to prepare a room for us in heaven. Listen, if you'll consider every single one of those paradoxical thoughts that Jesus, you will understand that Jesus took it upon Himself to bear our burden so that we might be beneficiaries of His grace and His mercy. He took the initiative through His humility and through His dishonor and through His sacrifice so that you and I might gain that which we do not deserve and could never earn. He left heaven's glory to be born as a lowly child in a manger so that you and I might benefit that we might be saved from our sins, be born again, and in one day inherit the blessing of eternal life in His presence in heaven forever. And all of that then just leads me to state for you rather simply what I think we should understand from this passage. My sermon in a sentence this morning is this. We will be ready for Christmas when we believe that in Christ, God has reversed our fortunes at His cost. In Christ, God has reversed our fortunes at His cost. You see, that's what makes Christmas the, the most wonderful time of the year. It is the time for us to be reminded of the great love that God has shown to us in sending His Son to ransom and redeem us. The, the, the paradoxical nature of the gospel can be summed up this way. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we become, might become the righteousness of God. And what that means is that in Christ, God reversed our fortunes at His cost. He paid the debt we could never pay so that we could inherit the blessings that we could never earn. I love how Jim Daly has put it. He says, the creator of heaven and earth gave up what he had so that we might receive what we need. The Lord Jesus gave up what he had so that we might receive what we need. So how do we receive it? Well, the paradoxical nature of Christmas and the gospel forces us into a paradoxical response. You see, in Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, self-denial and taking up one's cross and losing one's life so that they might find it, all of that runs counter to our normal way of thinking and responding. Our natural response is self-indulgence. Our natural response is to seek to avoid all costs, at all costs, the struggle that, that, and the pain that would be associated with taking up our cross. 
the natural response for us is to never give up control. To consider what Jesus says. To willingly lose our lives. Well, that is completely a foreign concept to us as humans. And yet, this is the response that the gospel of Christ demands. The gospel demands that we relinquish our belief and our trust in ourselves and that we embrace a vigorous faith in Jesus who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. It demands that we let go of all those things that we hold so dear to us and we clutch so tightly to our chest. All of our, our goals and our dreams and our plans and our pride and our vanity. We, we let go of all of that and we grasp tightly to the one who by his very nature had it all and gave himself for us. If we truly want to be ready for Christmas, then we must believe that in Christ, God has reversed our fortunes at His cost. He gave up what He had so that we might receive what we need. Do, do you believe that? Do you truly believe it? Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus to be your Savior? Are you following Him in obedience as your Lord? Have you made room for Him in your life and placed all of your faith and all of your hope and all of your confidence in Him? That is the only way, the only way that you will truly be ready for Christmas. You know, as the angel would go on to announce to the shepherds, so I declare to you this Sunday before Christmas, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God has given us the greatest gift ever. The gift of Himself through His Son. Who, though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor. So that through His poverty, we might become rich. He has reversed our fortunes at His cost. That is the message of Christmas. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let me pray with you this morning. Lord, I thank You for the message of Christmas and for the hope that it offers us. Unworthy sinners, devoid of all hope apart from You, Thank You that You took our burdens upon Yourself, the burden of our sin. And that because You have borne that burden for us, we have the hope of eternal life in heaven with You. Thank You for that. Thank You for the hope that You offer us through Christ and through this time of year. Now I pray, Lord, that You would cause our hearts to be drawn to You, that Your Holy Spirit would work in the lives of these who are here this morning and are hearing this message, I pray that you would draw them into an everlasting relationship with you and that they would respond in faith. I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.